0: Hello, so it's been a while since I've actually sat down and tried to record an episode of my kind of DIY podcast uh, and I guess the gap between recording this episode and the proceeding uh, has afforded me some space to reflect upon the shifting forms of my podcast in terms of how I frame my thoughts and the subsequent structure and methods I guess um, in which to present the podcast such as discursively or analytically. Uh, in this episode anyway and a number of subsequent episodes that I have in varying stages of development uh, I want to focus more on as well as read from the accounts of those who have been witnessed to murder I also want to use this episode to conclude the subject of doorstep murders that specifically employing two examples one broadly extending the term of doorstep murder and the other from a very very well known slain. So the first murder I'm going to look at today is that of Hugh Brendan McCormick. Now he was a sergeant in the Royal Oster Constabulary. He was murdered on the 3rd of March 1985. Um, he was age 40. He was married and he had three children. And just to read and part I'm going to quote from the book Lost Lives. However the first book I'll turn to is that, (laughs) and with thanks to Neil Southern, it's his book really, it's entitled Policing and the Combating of Terrorism in Northern Ireland, and the words uh, that I'll use are that of the wife of Sergeant McCormick So Neil was in communication uh, with Miss McCormick in June 2011 Okay, so quote, my husband was shot when we pulled up to go into church. He was shot dead in front of me and my three children. We stopped going to St. Michael's and Inniskillen because in those days, the IRA were outside the church selling the Republican newspapers and stuff. And rather than get targeted, we went out to a monastery. He was a very good singer and he was in the police choir and the Fermanagh Choral Society. And he was asked to lead the singing in church. And by doing so, he became a regular at one particular search service. And obviously somebody recognised him and planned his murder. And we were waiting on us that morning. We arrived at 20 past 10 that Sunday morning. There was a man in a grey duffel coat with the hood up, standing with his back to the wall and it was spitting rain. And I thought, you know the way thoughts just jump into your head. What's he doing standing there and it's raining? And as Hugh was locking the door, My eldest son was standing just beside him. My youngest son was still in the car. The guy in the duffel coat fired a revolver, which caused Hugh to fall to the ground. It was the first shot that had hit him and the gunman appeared out of nowhere, carrying the AK-47 rifle and continuously shot into Hugh's body as he lay on the ground and the car was hit twice. I could have lost both my sons because they were so close to their father and my daughter was pushed into the crowd, into the doorway of the church, and it was the IRA that killed him on church grounds. So obviously, we will have two gunmen in the active service unit, one carrying a handgun, with which to neutralise their uh, intended victim, and the other one carrying the AK-47, that no I to attempt to empty the whole clip into the victim. Of course, being an automatic weapon. It'll tend to rise and jar due to the velocity and rapid rate of the rounds leaving the weapon. It does also, I think, evidence uh, what's called tunnel vision, especially in uh, incidents such as this. And it even occurs to uh, people who are using the weapons, such as the gunman here. He probably would have experienced tunnel vision where he would just see his target and he would just be focused on um, killing his target. Um, I mean, obviously, the AK 47 is a favourite weapon amongst the para. Um, on a close quarter, it's devastating um, in terms of what it can do to a body. Um, so, I would imagine that in this instance, um, Mr. McCormick had long been depersonalised, dehumanised. And these types of attacks on off duty officers, whether in plain clothes with their family, it sort of gives lie to. Uh, you know you hear it so often about it was only a uniform and far enough there were i know there were some para members who preferred to engage uh, uniform soldiers or uniform police um, in terms of bombs or gun attacks but in saying that there was also a considerable number who were happy enough to gun down somebody on their front door or like in this instance uh, going to church and playing clothes with their family, where it definitely wasn't the case of someone in uniform or we were just killing a uniform. And sometimes I wish PAR members would be more honest um, in terms of that and more open that, you know, and stop hiding behind this killing a uniform mantra, um, which in quite a lot of cases uh, just wasn't the case at all. It was just killing somebody okay fair enough uh, in this then it was a member of the royal ulster constabulary but they were happy enough to slay him uh in front of his wife and children uh using a handgun using uh, an automatic weapon such as the ak-47 um and filling the body with as many rounds as possible um and they also would have known that uh keeping the finger on the trigger and emptying the clip would have prevented um, anybody from coming out of the church. It would have um, terrorised witnesses. Obviously, it would have terrorised the family, and if the muzzle sort of skips or rises here and there and some rounds ricochet off, or, as in this instance, hit the car and maybe kill a couple of children, well, that's unfortunate. Now, while the shooters may not have done all the intelligence work and um, sort of background decking work and setting up Mr McCormick, they would have rehearsed the killing in some form, and as is evident um, they were happy enough to go ahead with the killing when they saw or when they were probably probably knew that Mr. McCormick would arrive with his family so um that was no odds really in in some way they may have looked at Mr. McCormick's family as being complicit um so even as Neil says um, in his book quote. So the fact that the officer that's Sergeant McCormick was in the company of his family when he was murdered was not an accident obviously it was not an accident it was allowed for as part of the terrorist killing design and it goes without saying there was no quarter given, I mean when para are going to kill you, they're going to kill you they're either going to in this instance um, shoot you in the body with a a short arm or a long arm or walk up behind you and blow the back of your skull out the front of your head. I mean, I remember the the killing of Breen and Buchanan uh, in South Armagh. Um, There was a considerable ASU strength in that instance, uh, or in that operation as it were. And of course, automatic weapons were also used and it wasn't enough to put the two officers down to kill them but in quite a lot of instances and it's not only with republican it has happened with um, some loyalist terrorists as well um, that the terrorists would not only try and obliterate the body as such but they would also try and obliterate the face um, and this would just really mean using an automatic weapon uh, to shoot the face off the victim in that way, it sort of, well, it obliterates the identity of the victim. It completely wipes them out. It goes beyond, it's like a, a physicality of depersonalization and dehumanization. Not only do you mentally um, dehumanize somebody before you kill them, but you also physically dehumanize them by removing their face, obviously, their most recognizable feature. Um, and also, uh, in blowing somebody's face off or destroying their face you also um, target the family and in, in, in a kind of way be family and friends because you also deny the family and friends the possibility of having an open coffin uh, before burial because there's no way uh, after an automatic weapon uh, is unleashed on somebody's face that um, the, the face can be restructured in some way and um, for the coffin to be open. So it's just the mutilation of the the face and it's something which sort of stuck with me with several killings um, as a way just to damage, as it were, or inflict further pain and grief on family and friends. And it's it's just really another killing design, just to use Neil's word or phrase, uh, of the terrorists. So just to continue with the words of Sergeant McCormick's wife, um, she goes on to say quote, "I went back to the grounds the following Sunday because I couldn't allow the IRA to dictate to me the way I was going to live my life or what church I was going to go to. And I go there and I know that there are people in the congregation probably fingered to you, pointed to finger, um, as in past information to the IRA. Yes, unquote. Now, obviously, Sergeant McCormick's killing uh, is just one amongst thousands that happened during the Troubles, um, but it's just one that sort of stuck out at me in relation to doorstep killings. Um, because I don't want to be restricted when I say doorstep killings about uh, murders that happened specifically uh, as somebody opened the door of their home. Uh, kind of that's what I was trying to sort of highlight in the previous episode and that's why I kind of went down the line of um, the narrative form where I could better maybe try, well for me anyway it enabled me to relate um, an actual attempted murder um, to narrative because I was aware of the gun team involved um, the intelligence gathering operation that went on behind the gun team uh, and the victims and obviously uh, the outcome of the non-intended victim, as it were, uh, as well as the outcome of the the shooters themselves. Uh, so, so I think this uh, this one here, just of Sergeant McCormick, uh, I just wanted to highlight because although it's doorstep, the uh, shootings there's still a threshold here, as it were, with the the church um, and the church grounds, and that he was actually going to go into the church, and he, that's where he was targeted. Um, but also just in relation to the, you know, the the kind of damage it does to family members, who are present or who who witness the actual murder, of um, a husband or a father, uh, etc. Um, I mean, I, I'm aware of before was was some actual killings where somebody's come to the door, wrapped the door, and the victims come and open the door and has been shot and say. Um, the the wife's been present in the house. Well, a lot of times, um, I've heard that some wives um, or some victims' relatives, when they hear a knock at the door, they dread a knock at the door. Obviously, again, since you know the the actual killing, but they won't actually answer the door. They'll go out the back and they'll come round the front of the house if obviously access and egress permits such, rather than physically opening the door um, to somebody they're not expecting um, or maybe some stranger so that the have the, there's that fear built in and obviously that's what terrorism is about terrorism is constructed not just to um, you know murder one individual or several individuals but it's to cause a ripple effect through the whole community to terrorise a whole community um, and that's really Part of the mechanism of terrorism and it happens here with the doorstep killings you may have uh, witnesses in the street uh, uh, neighbours in the street who are aware of it um, and it does have an effect on people that they become more um, the, they kind of isolate themselves or try and cut themselves off from uh, what is happening in such a degree that um, they won't um, provide witness statements They'll be very, very disinclined to actually be truthful about their thoughts. You know, and you see that quite often in archive footage of people being interviewed, and even people being interviewed today. Um, There's a lot of instances where people won't give their names, or you'll just hear a voice, and I'll just say neighbour of somebody, and it kind of ripples down. It's it's sort of like a generational thing. Um, And that is, I guess, still that ripple effect of terrorism, and the acts of terrorism throughout the Troubles that still sort of travels down through generations. It hasn't left us. um, And it's also an undercurrent of sectarianism, mistrust, othering, etc. And it's something I think I've looked at in part uh, in previous podcasts. and no doubt it's something that I'll return to again in future podcasts because it's an inevitability and it's something... Uh, that sort of bleeds into every subject of our society, even to go so far as this mechanism that organised crime groups are using at the minute. I mean, they're still propagating the ideologies of the past, the sort of toxic ideologies to create fear. Um, And you create fear in a community or society, then obviously uh, you dissuade people from... uh, coming forward um, and providing evidence statements or you know um, witness statements of something because you keep the terror you have to keep those ripples of terror circulating in the community and to do that then you can um, obviously control and exploit that community to your own profit and benefit so just to sort of conclude um, talking about the murder of sergeant mccormick I'm going to return to the book Lost Lives um, and just the, the small extract in it about his murder. Um, it's number two six nine one from page one zero one three, and it sort of reads uh, the quote: "Sergeant McCormick, he joined the RUC at the age of twenty. and was an instructor at the RUC Training Centre in Enniskillen. He died a few days before passing out, prayed." And his wife was present at the past night parade and addressed the recruits, telling them, keep your heads high and remember everything he told you. He regarded you as very special. Don't harbour any bitterness. Be proud of your job and your uniform and be careful. Unquote. Now, <laughs> the next murder I'm going to move on to in this theme is that of Patrick Finnegan. Now, he was brutally murdered on the 12th of February 1989. Now, before I continue, something which always has stuck with me from my early days in the Royal Ulster Constabulary um, was way back in 1986. I'm sure I was only maybe a couple of months into the job, still had no idea what I was doing or what I got myself into and I was in the courthouse in Old Town Hall Street where the juvenile court was I think upstairs was the claims court and then of course there's consultation rooms off this side anyway I was in the 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 body of the court um, and I was with a colleague I think he was just um, showing me around the whole court kind of mechanisms and practices (laughs) but anyway I was standing I found myself at one point just standing the corridor leading up to the juvenile court at the time, and a solicitor, well I didn't even know he was a solicitor at the time, a, a man, and a said come up to me and ask me the time, so I told him the time, I think it was something like half past eleven, maybe quarter to ten, and he thanked me and I kind of thought nothing more of it, I was in, obviously it was in uniform um, at the time, and then a, a sergeant um, who was also in the corridor, I think he was looking after the guard squad or something there. Uh, walked over to me and basically asked me what I thought I was doing um, well, and I just explained obviously to him that um, I was there just to see around uh, the court and well, I wasn't long in uniform etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and he kind of said to me do you know who that was you just spoken to what did he say to you Uh so I was kind of taken aback I was just well <clears throat> it's just uh he just asked me what time it was, and, he said, and then he asked me, "Did I know that that was uh, Finucane, um who was a Republican solicitor?" Apparently, uh, which kind of uh, I didn't really. I mean, uh, obviously, I was really naive at the time. I didn't know, uh, didn't know, Mister Finucan from bottom. Uh, it was just somebody asking me the time, uh, but it was just the whole reaction. I think of the sergeant. Uh, which is uh, as I say it's something that stuck with me uh, because you know even looking back today uh, f- with what all I know um, and what all I've experienced and learnt and etc etc uh, you know if I had to relive that as such I would have still told Mr Finnickin what time it was uh, regardless um, of who he may have been or who some people believed he was or what he represented um he was just a solicitor really um going about his job in the court which is mostly natural enough um and i was in uniform going about my job in the court as well so it's just two professional people um and i'd say he just asked me a time but it, it's just stuck with me and maybe i'll say i'm kind of still naive or don't get the whole ethos of um sort of what I was getting myself into. But I mean, well, what what did that sergeant expect me? to just turn my back on him, on Mr Finnegan and just ignore him completely? Or I suppose he would have wanted me just to, the sergeant that is, maybe just turn on my heel and, and walk away without um, answering him or telling him the time, which is not a big thing to do really. Um, but in my mind it's sort of, you know, when you're in uniform you have to act professionally and regardless of who it is, if somebody comes up and asks you the time in court, obviously if you have a watch, you tell them the time because otherwise if you're going to behave um, sort of in an ignorant manner, it kind of demeans the uniform, it demeans yourself, it demeans your professionalism Um, and I I just, I don't get it and I've kind of never got it. But anyway, I'm, I'm sort of digressing a wee bit, which I knew I would. I knew I would sort of go off on tangents because it's one thing I do when I'm sort of allowed to ramble freely uh, without being tethered to a script or whatever I do kind of ramble. Um, and, and just in the context of Mr. Finucane, I remember as well, um, more, more recently, um, I was working opposite his son, I'm going to say, Working Obviously, I mean, I was at one side of an interviewing table um, and he was at the other representing his client. Um, But I always find um, Michael Finnegan, who I'm talking about now, um, as being very, well, uh, friendly and professional. Now, obviously, you know, he he behaves this way because, you know, he's a solicitor um, and, as I've been told, you know... some people have said oh no that's a, that's just a front don't be taken in by all that that's just to give you obviously that's just to get you to uh, disclose information or, or get you off guard which it may well be I mean you know pref- solicitors from of all from all uh ilks and from all tribes or whatever you know <clears throat> our backgrounds all, all, all I, I guess they all have they all individually have some kind of um, sort of mechanism or whatever just to sort of try and get a wee bit more information from interviewing officers in order to help their their client because by helping their client obviously they help themselves uh to some degree but anyway i always find them um kind of straightforward um even in court even um if i was in court and playing clothes or whatever um i was attending court if i passed if we passed each other um, say him coming out of court, me in the court or whatever, he would always nod and say hello, um, rather than sort of just uh, blankly, you know, ignore me, which you know, some other solicitors who I knew would have done, and they may have been they were engrossed in their work or whatever, or just didn't recognise me, but he always made a point of sort of nodding, um, you know, a gesture in, in, in some way, just to kind of say, ign- Hello, or just to acknowledge my, my presence, as it were. So I never had any issue with the man, um, at all. Uh, and I I got I have been flamed and burned really, really badly, um, by colleagues for saying that, for even daring to say that I find uh, Michael Finucane, well, for want of a better word, grand, dead on. Um, a consummate professional, as it were, and somebody never give me any bother, um and for even just um during uh to sort of um explain that to them or or just bring it up in conversation. I got such um a herald of abuse it's you know it's unbelievable. But anyway I don't want to go back over I don't wanna wreck over old territory about Um, the amount of grief I got in the past really over this um, parts of this podcast and my thoughts and attitudes you know uh, obviously I don't toe the the line as such uh, when it comes to organisational memory or folklore or whatever but anyway anyway I don't want to get uh, sidetracked into all that again Um, so what I'm going to do um, because the murder of Uh, Mr. Finucane is so so notorious and obviously it's still to some degree unresolved to this day Uh, what I'm going to do is just read through the entry and again from Lost Lives so it's quite a sizable entry so I'll try and go through it as best I can so if you just um, if you can just follow me okay thanks so this is entry Three zero one two on page one one five nine of the book Lost Lives, in relation to the murder of Patrick Finnucan. So, quote: A prominent defence solicitor, he was shot by the UDA slash UFF at his home in Fort William Drive in the Antrim Road district in an incident which gave rise to a long-running controversy. Allegations about his death were still being levelled by human rights groups in nineteen ninety nine and um, that's bit of time and the sort of dates um the lost lives book uh okay to continue more than a decade after his death um, he was killed as he and his family were eating a sunday meal uda members knocked down the front door with sledgehammers and used a revolver and a pistol to fire 14 shots all of which hit him his wife was wounded in the foot during the attack which was witnessed by all three of the couple's children so again, here just a break from um, the quote. Uh, you have this vicious attack in the family home, where uh, the killers burst into the the house, um, murder Mr. Finucane in front of his family. It's witnessed by his children. It's witnessed by his three children, and I still forget those three children who grew in the adulthood are going to carry that image, those images and those sounds. Um, with them for the rest of their lives Um, so just to come back to lost lives uh, quote Patrick Finucane's wife told the inquest in September 1990 that on the day of the shooting she heard a loud noise coming from the front door then saw a figure who was masked dressed in black and appeared to be wearing gauntlets she went on the shooting started immediately very fast I landed up in a corner then there were more shots very slow and deliberate Pat was lying on the floor on his back the gunmen escaped in a stolen taxi which was later found on the woodvale road in a statement supplied to the bbc the ulster freedom fighters said they shot Pat finucane the professional ira officer not Pat finucane the solicitor the finucane family said Police road checks had been in place close to the solicitor's home less than an hour before the shooting but had been removed by the time of the attack. Pat Finucane was buried in Belfast City Cemetery after a requiem mass in St. Teresa's Church, Somerton Road. Members of his family had strong Republican connections. His brother John, a member of the IRA, was killed in a car crash in 1972 while on active service. Another brother successfully contested an attempt to extradite him to Northern Ireland from the Irish Republic. A third brother, who had been interned as a teenager, was the fiancée of Maria Farrell, the IRA member, shot dead by the Special Air Service in Gibraltar. An RCUC Detective Superintendent, told the inquest that the killing was the most ferocious murder I have come across. Every shot seemed to strike home, and I believe the gunmen involved had murdered before. They were certainly experienced in the use of weapons, Counsel for the Finucane family said an RUC officer had told one of the solicitor's clients you will not be having Mr Funukin as a solicitor much longer and that the police are going to get him. Counsel for the RUC contested the comments. The detective said a number of suspected Ulster Freedom (coughs) fighter members had been detained and interviewed at length about the killing in. We believe that the main perpetrators of the murder were among these suspects but no evidence was available to sustain a charge of murder. Responding to questions from the coroner and counsel for the family, he said there was no evidence whatever to support the Loyalist claim that Pat Finucane had been an officer in the IRA. The policeman agreed he was just another law-abiding citizen going about his profession in a professional manner. Mrs Finucane told the inquest he had had phone calls. I think there may have been one letter at some stage, but not to the House. But there were other threats made through other parties, not directly to him, but reported to him. This was in Castlereagh. The first defence counsel to be killed during the troubles he had appeared in a series of high-profile cases representing Republicans and occasionally Loyalist clients. Although there were hundreds of solicitors in Belfast, only a handful of firms were regarded as regularly specialising in cases involving Republican and Loyalist suspects prosecuted under anti-terrorist legislation. Pat Finucane's firm was prominent among these. He had acted for IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands and at one point represented all the IRA and Inla hunger strikers. He had also successfully defended Pat McKeown, another hunger striker on charges arising from the IRA killings of two army corporals in Andersonstown in March 1988. A partner in the city practice, he was also acting for the widow, Gervais McKear, One of the men shot dead by the RUC in so-called shoot to kill incident in November 1982. In November 1988, Pat Finnegan walked out of court hearing on the killing describing it as a farce. The controversy surrounding his death arose from a number of sources, including proceedings in the House of Commons. Three weeks before the shooting, a junior Home Office Minister, Douglas Hogg, had alleged during the committee stage of the prevention of terrorism bill that some solicitors sympathize with the IRA. The minister said I have to state as a fact, but with great regret, that there are in Northern Ireland a number of solicitors who are unduly sympathetic to the cause of the IRA. Challenged on his statement he went on, for the purposes of the discussion let us assume that it is true that there are a number of solicitors in Northern Ireland known to be sympathetic to one or other terrorist organisation. I have three choices. First I could choose not to make that fact plain to the committee. Secondly I could put it in terms that I have used and make the general statement that there are a number of solicitors in Northern Ireland known to be sympathetic to one or other terrorist organisation. The third possibility is for me to say that Mr So-and-so is known to be a solicitor sympathetic to the cause of the IRA. Would it be right for me to withhold from the committee my belief based on advice that there are a number of solicitors in Northern Ireland known to be sympathetic to one or other terrorist organisation. That is true and it is relevant to what we are discussing. It seems to me plain that if I believe that to be true, I should state it. I do believe it to be true and I state it. The comments were made on January 17th and were condemned at the time by SDLP MP Seamus Mallon, who said they represented a very dangerous allegation which could lead to an attempt on the life of a solicitor. The MP said it would be on a minister's head. on the heads of this government if an assassin's bullet did what his words had done mr hogg was also criticized at the time by the northern ireland law society which said his comments were extremely damaging and constituted a slur on the entire legal profession the law society added what mr hogg has done is to create an excuse for terrorist organizations to carry out murders something which was not available to them before another aspect of the controversy arose from allegations that detectives interrogating Loyalist prisoners in Castle Ray, Bolton Centre had urged Loyalists to shoot the solicitor. A number of the solicitor's clients alleged that they were told by detectives that he would be shot. Army agent Brian Nelson later told a BBC Panorama programme broadcast on June the 8th 1992 that a UDA figure had asked him to compile information about the lawyers' movements. Nelson claimed He later gave a briefing to the UDA and told his army handlers about the matter. The Finucane killing was the subject of several inquiries by international lawyers groups. Amnesty International called for an independent investigation into the killing, saying the killing of Pat Finucane and the apparent lack of a thorough investigation into his killing has had wide ramifications for the public perception of the rule of law within Northern Ireland. The Belfast-based Committee on Administration of Justice In a submission to the United Nations Special Rapporteur on summary or arbitrary executions in October 1993 described the killing as significant beyond its immediate circumstances and consequences. It said Pat Finucane died as a result of intimidation of defence lawyers in Northern Ireland. Lawyers here continue to report that intimidation is still taking place and that his murder is used to threaten other lawyers. In 1993, the New York-based Lawyers Committee for Human Rights called for an independent inquiry into the episode saying suspicions persisted about official collusion in the killing. The report stated, The evidence suggests that Fanukin's success as a lawyer subjected him to various forms of official intimidation prior to his murder. There is also additional evidence pointing to collusion between the Ulster Freedom Fighters and the security forces in the murder itself. The authors said... They were told by sources, whom they did not name, that RUC interrogators at Belfast-Castlereagh-Holton Centre had told UFF suspects that Mr. Finucane and two other solicitors were the brains behind the IRA. The RUC, in a response, described the report as falling far short of the balance, fairness, depth and contacts which the sensitive and complex situation in Northern Ireland requires. It said it would exacerbate difficulties and contribute to divisiveness and unjustifiable contention. The Northern Ireland Office said the report made extremely grave allegations of security force collusion with loyalist terrorists, but failed to produce credible evidence of this. In April 1998, a United Nations report called for an independent inquiry into the Finucane killing. The report was the work of Malaysian jurist Param Kuroswamy, who was the u.n human rights commission special rapporteur on the independence of judges and lawyers the u.n report said outstanding questions surrounding the the murder demonstrate the need for an independent judicial inquiry so long as this murder is unresolved many in the community will continue to lack confidence in the ability of the government to dispense justice in a fair and equitable manner the OEC responded to this report by saying it fell short In terms of objectivity, accuracy, and fairness, but as a supposed fact finding mission, it gives Scott regard to measurable facts or evidence to support allegations. Indeed, its language and tone throughout give claims and anecdotes the status of facts without the apparent need for evidence of proof. Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir John Stevens was tasked with conducting an inquiry into Finucane killing in April 2003. He presented his findings. He said he had uncovered enough evidence to lead him to believe that Pat Fanukin's murder could have been prevented and that there had been collusion between security forces and loyalists in his death. He also concluded that Douglas Hogg had been compromised by a briefing from senior RUC officers. Sir John said inquiries were obstructed, evidence was concealed and destroyed and that a 1990 fire at his team's offices was arson. Alongside the Stevens inquiry, the British government established an inquiry under retired Canadian Judge Peter Corey to decide whether there should be a public inquiry when the government in December 2003 delayed publishing his report. The judge told the Finucane family he had recommended a public inquiry, on, quote. Now that's quite, quite lengthy for um, an input into uh, the Lost Lives book, as, as is obviously uh, evident. Uh, but, but what sort of uh, kinda keeps going through my mind is that Mr Finucane was brutally shot dead in front of his family. Same with um, Sergeant McCormick, brutally murdered in front of his family one by Republican terrorists, the other by Loyalist terrorists. Uh, And it kind of, it it just underlines the the grubby, dirty little war that the Troubles was and that people were on both sides um, of the divide were quickly, how quickly they could be depersonalised, dehumanised, othered and just made an enemy on just through whatever terms it could be to justify um such brutality and such such really bloodlust blood frenzy um because you know make no mistake that these these trigger men these killers um would have went back to their communities and been celebrated um and probably didn't have to buy another round for the rest of their lives so anyway i think i need to conclude this episode now because i can't really believe um i've sort of talked on as long as i could uh I know that some folk have asked, you know, about uh, bringing guests on or talking to guests, but I think um, my current setup and my current sort of state of mind, um, that that that's kind of beyond the scope of um, my capability. Um, I'm just basically sitting at my kitchen table with a, a laptop and a microphone, trying not to be distracted by birds on the bird feeder, um, while I'm trying to... Kind of get my thoughts and focus, and and kind of recount those those thoughts as it were, um, while also uh, kind of I suppose living in the past, uh, um, and sort of being medicated on a whole cocktail of sort of drugs and um, psychiatry. Uh, but anyway, sorry. So um, the next episode, anyway, what I want to look at is the element of forgiveness um, and recrimination. Uh, so again I'm going to be uh, looking at testimonies or, or thoughts from victims, um, or victims families more so, uh, people who have been affected by the loss of um, a member of their family and how they have found the capability to express or wish to express forgiveness as such and if it is really a possibility because we're still in these cycles, these endless cycles of um othering, of sectarianism, of whataboutery uh, that seems to be endless and going on and on uh, and it doesn't seem to be any solution to it. Um so anyway that's what I'm gonna look at in the next um uh, podcast and I say I think I, I brought up something about guests but uh, I say th- there's other more professional podcasts out there um, I, I suppose maybe looking at the whole uh, so Troubles are, or where we're we in Northern Ireland like I think um, Gareth Mulvaney's, um Shrapnel podcast uh, I know they frequently have guests on uh, uh, you know talking about such things but as I say I'm just sitting here at my kitchen table um, trying to get a lot of fractured thoughts in place and try not to ramble too much and try not to fly off in tangents which uh, I know I'm conscious that I always do and I do especially when I'm at therapy sessions and stuff um, but I'm, uh, to some extent I've, I've always been encouraged in the therapy context um, to just sort of run with my thoughts um, I don't know on some occasions I've been sitting looking at my psychologist or whatever and being aware that he's or she are looking at the clock above my head probably internally rolling their eyes going how much longer is this idiot going to go on talking for but anyway that's for another day Uh, so um, as always thanks very much for listening thanks for your time I really appreciate it Um, when I record these sort of podcasts I kind of forget about them not sort of intensely but they're they're kind of once they're out that's them out Um, not so much out of my head, but out into the open and they just sort of go on and maybe have their own lives and I don't necessarily return to them. Um, Maybe sometimes I remember things I've talked about, the majority of times I don't. Um, But they're out there, they're they're still available uh, for anybody who'd like to listen to them. I was going to sort of knock the whole project on the head, but I've decided just to maybe continue on with it for... Um, as long as I can, I guess, because um, I have started on a new kind of novel. And I've sort of looked at it now, and it seems to be morphing into metafiction. So it's going to be kind of... Uh, no, it's not metafiction. It's autofiction, it's called. So it's kind of going to be autobiographical in some sense, but um, maybe not. But it's going to be um, quite different anyway from a previous novel. And again, the, the the writing of fiction um, as such is all therapy for me because I can put a lot of true stuff or actual events um, and dress them up as fiction. Um, so it, it sort of helps me kind of process things. And But maybe if, if it's of if interest and people like reading it, which some do, well, that, that's fantastic, but it's not a be-all and end-all thing for me. It's just a process. So anyway, I've taken off enough of your time. So thanks very much for enduring this uh, podcast with me or this particular episode with me it has been quite long-winded to say the least so um thank you until the next one